Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast and i will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible all i ask in return is a share post and a tag now let's get on with it hello everybody welcome to the urm podcast my guest today is jake pitts who's a musician songwriter producer and engineer known for his notable performances with his band black veil brides He's actually worked on Black Veil Brides albums since 2010 and even worked with producers like John Feldman and Bob Rock on some of the releases. I mean, he really knows what he's doing. And just in case you don't know or have been living under a rock since like 2009, Black Veil Brides has been nominated for and won countless awards from Revolver, Loudwire, Kerrang, and have toured all corners of the earth and have done super well for themselves. Jake and his wife, Ina, have created another project called Elonia, uh, which Jake writes and produces as well. Really, I would call Jake a renaissance man. Anyways, enough for the intro. I give you Jake Pitts. Well, Jake Pitts, welcome to the URM podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. How are you doing? How's uh, how's lockdown treating you? I mean, I, I can't really complain, you know. Uh, I have in my house here, I have my own music studio. Uh, I've been doing Twitch. Um, my wife and I, uh, you know, my wife's very creative. We do music together as well. So, um, you know, the whole lockdown thing for me, I think the the biggest weirdness for me was just the, like the small things, you know, like going to a restaurant. Uh, you know, one of my favorite yes. things to do is I, I love going out for sushi, like to a good sushi restaurant and just enjoying like an awesome meal in the restaurant. And yes. it's been, you know, we haven't been able to do that since I guess like January. And, uh, you know, I was very busy with Blackville, uh, February and March, we were getting ready for tour and we went and played Mexico City. And the second we got back, it was right when everything started to happen. So it kind of, you know, everything got shut down at, at that point. So just like the normalities in life, you know, going to a movie, going to the restaurant, it's just everything's so weird now. Uh, restaurants are starting to open in LA, but they're like closing off streets so the restaurants can put their tables out in the street. And so if you go to the restaurant, you're sitting what? out outside, which isn't bad. That's kind of cool too. But, you know, it's summer, it's hot as hell here. So, yeah. Well, it's better than nothing, I guess. I, like, yeah. I know what you mean. And normally, 
I just stay home anyways when I'm not traveling because now the mix, we travel so much. Yeah, yeah. Actually travel more with that than I used to in the band. And so my normal life at home means going almost nowhere. Yep. But like, for instance, dating in this time period is fucking weird. Oh, I bet. Like yeah, to plan way in advance. Yeah. And I still don't even know what that entails in this day and age. Like, yeah, it's things like that, that are weird to me. Like, how is that even going to work? But on the other hand, um, I think that this is probably for those of us who are able to work on our stuff and have not been totally fucked over by it and who have a setup and have something going this is almost a gift of time that I think you're never going to get again in your life. So once in a lifetime thing, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, I think a lot of people are, are a little bit lost. I, I guess, like you said, you know, like for me, it's being at home. Is, I'm always at home and, you know, my studio's here. If I'm working on Blackville stuff or songwriting or working on music with my wife or doing Twitch or, or whatever, it's it's all here. So yep. I honestly feel like I've been in, I mean, you can say lockdown for literally like the last year straight pretty much because uh, last September... It was the first time I got to actually produce, record, and mix some Blackville stuff. And we did this uh, duology, two songs, we called it The Night. And we started that September 1st. And that just ran straight into doing like our, our 10-year anniversary re-record of the, our first record, Restitch These Wounds, which we put out, which I did that as well. And then right into, you know, supposed to be going on tour. But I mean, you know, in a sense, you know, I'm going to rehearsals and stuff, but... Uh, we went down to Mexico City, played the one show, came back, and then locked down. And then it's just like, okay, well, what do we what do we do in the meantime? You know, we can't. I mean, I guess that's the beauty of it of of me being able to have my setup. Literally, I I walk ten feet, and I'm from the bed to this this room, and I'm in my studio. And yep. you know, it's like, you know, for most bands, you have to like, oh, nobody can do anything because everybody was shutting down everything. So. Uh, for us here, it's like the guys weren't coming over, but we would just throw ideas back and forth or whatever. Or I would, you know, even my wife and I would write a song and send it to Andy and be like, hey, man, what do you think of this? Like, could this be a Black Veil song? And so we've been able to just keep, like, just keep moving forward. Like nothing, nothing's really affected us in the sense of our creativity or like nothing has stopped me during this quarantine from you know, continuing my life and, and moving forward creatively at all. And like you said, it's a gift of time. If anything, it's just, we've had nothing but time. You know, I was supposed to be on tour all year, so. Yeah, but you're still using the time productively. Um, You know, so, I mean, I know that we've met before, but I don't really know the people in your band. Like, I don't think I've met them, but I've known Blasco forever. And um, one of the smartest dudes in the game, Dan too. And uh, Blasco doesn't deal with idiots. And so I've, he like doesn't have the patience for them. So I've always known just because you, you guys were involved with him for so long um, that, and it's just so, so much, so many good things happen for the band. I've always looked at you guys as one of those bands that, uh, and this was just a guess because I didn't know you guys was, super capable of getting shit done regardless of circumstance uh, and have some 
some sort of entrepreneurial blood is running through the veins in that band. I've always kind of thought that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's accurate? A hundred percent. You know, uh, you know. I think it's a it's a good mix of uh, Andy, the the singer. He's very like his vision is very straightforward. He knows exactly what what he's trying to uh, portray. Uh, he, I would definitely give him the credit for um, any of the like. For example, we did a record, Wretched and Divine. It was this entire concept album, and it was just an idea in his head, and he wrote this whole story, and then you know, finding our ways, how do we make this a reality? How do we make it happen? And it's kind of what we're doing now, but it's just a little bit different. Like we did that with John Feldman and now it's a little bit different. We're, we're doing another concept record and I'm getting to produce this one. So let's talk about that for a second. Okay. So there's two aspects I want to explore about you producing your own band. Um, I'll just introduce both of them now and pick which one you want to start with. All right. So Number one, I want to talk about how you earned enough trust from the band to where they would feel comfortable recording with you because, you know, sometimes a band member taking on that role goes against kind of the dynamic between the players sometimes, sometimes. And then also sometimes when bands uh, self-produce, things go weird. And so I want to talk about what you're doing to make sure things don't go weird. So which one do you want to start with? Um, I'll probably start with the first one. I mean, it, it is definitely an interesting position to be in, to, you know, be a member of the band. I think being so heavily involved in the writing, you know, when we first started out, it was, you know, uh, most of my material that became the first two albums. And I had already had this material written before I was even in the band. And, uh, you know, it was it, musically, I didn't have uh, melody or vocals on it, but, you know, it, it was kind of, I think right off the bat when I joined Blackville, you know, I kind of, it was known that, hey, I can write songs and I can demo songs. And, you know, my production skills 10 years ago were nothing what they are now, obviously. But they knew that you were that. They knew I was that dude. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah. guy who can do that. Yep, yep. So, but there's a long, it's a long abyss between being, the guy in the band who can do that, which I admit 10 years ago was actually pretty rare. Now, now it's not so rare, but 10 years ago, for sure. not that many bands had that guy in them. And, uh, but that's still like a wide, wide abyss between that. And then actually being able to, you know, produce and mix an album when there's, you know, when there's the kind of pressure involved uh, that a band your size has. Because it's not it's not a small deal. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with just how I've grown musically and how how much more open minded I am than I was even you know even five years ago when we were making a concept album with John Feldman. We we're making that in the later months of 2012, and that came out in 2013. At this point in my career, I was so just like. In my mind, I was the biggest metalhead. It was Lamb of God riffs all day long, you know, like just the heavy, I listened to the heaviest music. And so I wanted to always bring like the gnarliest drums, the like heavy riffs, guitar solos, dual leads. Like I wanted to write insanity and make and make crazy, crazy songs. And when we were making that record with John Feldman, you know, we, we kind of, John Feldman and I did butt heads at first. 
And I think it took that, and it was it was such a cool experience for me to go through, to be working with such a you know a list producer and be like arguing with him over like, no, I want to do this and this, you know, and and uh, Andy at the same time had uh, our singer, he had such a, a vision of what he wanted to do. And it was just it was just kind of like a mess at the start, honestly. So that sounds like three three strong minded people going for the same kind of going for the same thing, but not exactly, it sounds like. Like you, yeah. obviously you all wanted to have the best record possible. We got it there. Sounds like and you got there, but it sounds like you had to there were times when there were three opposing visions. You yeah, had to yeah, work there that was, out. There was literally times where John Feldman would be yelling at me and I'd be flipping out, ready to leave, just like, I'm out of here, you know, kind of thing. Uh and then there would be times where he's coming up with an idea and Andy's like, No, this is not even close. And and it was just kind of like uh it took this this probably like, I don't know, two, three weeks to a month of just kind of trying to figure everything out. And then we got in the groove and it would be like, okay, well, I mean, there was all the way to the end of the record, there was songs being like written that were just like, nope, that's not even close. To, uh, I, I think like a, a huge part that why I felt this like conflict at the beginning was because I am, you know, I, I've always had the the want to take on the role as the producer and, and the writer. And John Feldman is such a, uh, a heavy uh, songwriter producer. And I came in with all these songs, like already demoed, musically ready to go. Like, let's put some vocals on them. And he wouldn't even want to hear them. He's like, let's go write four songs today. And I'm like, what yeah. about my song? So for me, as a member of the band, that was kind of like, yo, you don't even care about what I'm bringing to the table. Like, what is this? Eventually those songs got there. We they made the record, you know, we we recorded them and and they came out great. But it was I I understand now. It's a tough pill to swallow the first time. Yeah, for sure. So it was for me it was a huge learning experience. And at the time I maybe didn't really understand it, but it was when I look back at it now, that was probably one of the most uh, you know, pivotal moments in as far as me becoming somebody who can become a successful producer was working with, you know, John Feldman's a pretty intense guy. That's what I've heard. But you know what? I don't think you can do what he does and not be an intense guy. It's kind of like, yeah, it's, it's part of the deal. Like for, to have that kind of brain that's capable of that much so consistently, dude's going to be turned up to 11 all the time. Yeah. Basically. It, it's mind blowing. That guy, like, I wish I mean, I know he drinks an insane amount of coffee, or at least he used to. I don't know if he does anymore, but I mean, yeah, man, I, we would always talk about, I wish I could have the energy this guy does. Like, you know, he's just <laughs> constantly on 11. And yeah, it's, I don't know how he juggles as many things as he has going on as he does. Insane songwriter, producer, very talented guy. I, I'm very happy. And he churns out talent. Like people who work under him go on to do big things. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. Look at Zach Cervini. Yeah, yeah, dude. There's a whole list of yeah. Th there's a few producers out there who have spawned Eric Ron, quite some people. Do you know Machine, who did like Lamb of God back in the day? Yeah, yeah. Will Putney came up under him. Okay. Josh Wilbur came up under him. Servini actually worked with him too. Oh at yeah, one yeah, point. yeah. Yep, Before yep. yeah. So that's another one of those dudes that just spawns greatness. But what about it was 
pivotal? Like, how did it change? Like, did you learn flexibility or like, is it that you learned the potential of where things could go if you allow them to, or what was it? Um, I think one of the, one of the biggest things for me was, you know, I wouldn't say I'm so shy anymore, but like for a long time, I was kind of like more of a quiet, shy guy. And maybe I was insecure. I never really knew where to start with like vocal melody or like anything like that. I wasn't good with that. I was just like, I'm the guitar player. And and being a guitar player, you're writing melody constantly, obviously. But mm-hmm. vocal melodies are so much more simple than like writing a guitar lead. They sound dumb on guitar. Exactly. It sounds yeah. really dumb. And I think what what start where it started for me was hearing John Feldman go in the vocal booth and like just start singing da 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 da, you know, just singing these da 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 vocals that just sound hilarious, and just doing it like he's the most confident person on earth. And I was like, wow, like that's really inspiring to see. And that's one of the specific moments that made me go like, okay, that's how this guy does it. Like I just can do go that. For it. Yeah, you yeah. just go for it, and he's just spitting out whatever comes off the top of his head. And in my private time, I started kind of trying to like do some of that. And that turned into me just becoming very comfortable with it. I don't care if the room's filled with people or recording a voice note, Beavis and Butthead style, like a riff, like dun, 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 you know, <laughs> that's how we've started songs on records now. And it's just, I think something for me, you know, building confidence and then you know, people can laugh at it or whatever uh, because, yeah, it does sound funny and it doesn't well, doesn't who cares? Uh, affect yeah, exactly. Who cares? Because then it cares? turns into awesomeness and and uh, so as far as like working with John Feldman, I think that was a huge thing, just a learning experience for me of of even from like the songwriting aspect. Um, you know, working with different producers, I've picked up little things here and there, just like different styles of how they do things. And just kind of applied that to my own workflow or tried things and and maybe, uh, you know, put my own spin on it. I, I swear I've turned so many producers on to a Kemper profiling amp, like when they first <laughs> came out. I know John Feldman, and he was like, what is this thing? And we we profiled, uh, back in 2012, we profiled all his amps. And, he, and uh, we were working with Brandon Paddock at the time. And... We were profiling everything one night and he came walking in and he's like, what is this thing? Like, what are you guys doing right now? We're like, oh, we're, we're profiling all these amps and like capturing capturing the profiles of them. So like your diesel is set up right now and we just profiled it and like, check it out. And we were like a being back and forth and he's like, wait a minute. So you just basically stole all my amps? I was like, yeah, pretty much. And he's like, that's so <laughs> awesome. And uh, so then he ended up, you know, he jumped on the train. I think he sold all his amps or something. I don't know. Maybe he still has some, but uh, I remember him. He's like, oh, I'm getting rid of all these. And he just uses Kemper. Uh, Bob Rock, we did an album with. And we spent three days at Steakhouse Studios in North Hollywood. I like that place. Yeah, it's great. We tracked drums there a lot. So we tracked drums there and we had three extra days. I'm good friends with Colin and uh, Alex who are over there. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Um, we spent three days just nerding out on guitar tones, just getting every amp we could find and profiling them. So that was pretty cool. But I think the experience working with John Feldman, you know, for me, seeing like just a totally different take on songwriting where, you know, I would always start my whole career, my whole, as a musician, since I started playing guitar, I would write songs starting with guitar. 
and starting with a riff and then building a song out and then programming drums to it and just building it as I go. Thinking like a guitar player. Exactly. And would you sit down, like write the riff on the guitar itself? Like that's how you wrote? Yeah. Physically? I would just noodle around until I started coming up with something cool and then see where I could take it. Yep. That's how I'd write too. Yep. And John Feldman really kind of opened the door for me to see that, you know, there's another way to do it. You can put down a piano, a four chord piano progression and start with a vocal melody. And some songs would start purely just like some kind of piano riff, some programming, and then he would put a vocal down to it, put some drums down, and there would literally not be any guitar or bass. And there would it would start to structure out this whole song. And I'm like, whoa, like this sounds this doesn't sound like a rock song at all. I'm like, what is this? And then, you know, we end up putting down guitars, start writing some leads over it, make a heavy riff. And then it's like, oh, okay. And I was like, this is interesting. It's like working backwards. And that was the first time really ever going with a vocal melody and a chord progression first that's not done on guitar and working backwards. And that was, it was very awkward for me at first, but honestly, for the most part, that's how I write now. I don't even, I'll just start with a, like a chord progression on piano or, uh, I mean, some stuff will start with guitar, obviously, but if I have like a riff or something, but um, it's more so or not, I find myself writing so outside the box of, of what I would normally do. Um, So I think that was like, it really took me out of my comfort zone working with John Feldman. And it became probably one of the the best things that could have happened to me as a musician, songwriter, uh, upcoming producer. Uh, It just really opened up my world to seeing other possibilities of how things can be done and how it can become a success from that. So that was a huge thing there. Uh, The other thing of opening up my mind was meeting my wife, actually. Uh, She got me into EDM music, and that's a whole nother... It's like another planet, basically. Yeah, I spent about the last three years learning how to produce EDM music, and that just took took everything to a whole nother level for me. Interesting. I want to come back to that. I want to hear more about that, but I want to cover the second second thing, so related to you producing the band. I don't even know if I answered the first question. I just kind of started going off there. <laughs> I want to spend a little more time on that. Okay, so what I'm gathering is you started as the dude who, in the band who was capable of that stuff, not necessarily pro, but that was yep. part of your role. Yeah. Um, then you get with someone like Feldman and <laughs> mind blown, yep. basically, and pick up skills from him. And over the years, from all the different amazing people you guys have worked with, you've been taking notes and doing your own productions and basically seeing those as a way to get mentored by those people. Yep, absolutely. So that's kind of what I'm interpreting. And then eventually get to a point where the band realizes that you know what you're doing. Yeah, well, I think the the big moment that, made everybody kind of go like, whoa, okay. Uh, you know, like guys like Blasco, you know, being our manager, he's not he's not in the studio with us every single day. He just kind of will like, he'll pop in, check it out. Cool, how's it going? Mm-hmm. All right, you know. Um, I mean, he's very active. He does show up a lot, but- He's the opposite of overbearing though. Exactly. And I don't think any of like our business people or anything like had any idea of 
what's actually going on. You know, we would go work with John Feldman or Bob Rock or uh, Josh Abraham, you know, what, whatever producer we're working with. And I think people just automatically assume like, okay, this is the producer. They're doing everything. Like you guys, you know, make the music, you play the parts and, and they put it all together. What I don't think maybe a lot of people even realized was when we did those records, I was actually tracking guitars at my place. And on the record we did with Bob Rock, I ended up, I edited all the, I wasn't supposed to, it wasn't my job. Nobody asked me to do it. It just never got done. And I went to track guitars uh, for our fourth, fourth record and uh, Bob Rock's engineer, they, they, the drums were comped, but nobody edited them. Like they were just the raw takes. And I was like, what yeah. in the world? Um, and so I had to edit all the drums on the record. I ended up changing Bob's drum comps because I was like, this doesn't make sense. And and maybe like, you know, I, I felt at the time I was overstepping my boundary of like, well, this is Bob Rock and he's producing a record, but I really feel that I have to change this. It's still your record. It's exactly. And that's, I was like, no, I'm changing this. And I thought for sure, like, you know, I, I spent a month tracking all the guitars and the bass and, and I edited the drums. And then we went to Vancouver to do vocals and- Hand of the drive, and I thought for sure he's going to hear all the stuff I did, and he's going to be like, "Oh, you changed everything, and what did you do?" And and he played it, and he just turns around, and he's like, "Everything sounds awesome," and I was like, <laughs> "Okay, all right, that's great." I think the big thing with my band, maybe Blasco, and everybody just kind of being like, "Wow, like okay, like he's really stepped forward and and can and do this." Was Andy went on to do a solo project as Andy Black, and he went. And did that for about two years off his first album. So the rest of us had like two years where we were just kind of like chilling. And, uh, or you could say chilling. I, I was not. I was every day sitting there learning, learning, learning. And uh, my wife and I kind of accidentally started making music together. She's a singer, songwriter. And she had this song that, you know, one of her friends kind of demoed out and he was in a band that a long time ago, uh, Joey actually produced their album. And I don't, I think their album came out. I'm, I'm not sure. It was a band called Now I See. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it's called, they were called. Anyway, I, I think they're a different band name now, but she played me this song. I was like, this actually sounds pretty cool. And it was just a music, musical thing. And she's like, oh, I have like vocals for it. I just haven't recorded it. And I said, all right, well, why don't you let me record the vocals? So we, we did the song and then ended up, uh, I was like, okay, like I'll sing some harmonies on it and I'll do my part. And we just, we ended up like making this song and I was like, this is kind of cool. This is something different. And like, uh, we ended up shooting a music video for it and, and we put it out and we just, kind of accidentally started doing this thing together. And then we, like, literally, I, I, I remember, like, it was yesterday, I was joking around on, like, guitar, and I was like, oh, like, you know, dumb riffs like this, and just, like, making fun of stuff. And then I was like, wait, that's actually kind of cool, you know? <laughs> and then we literally just, like, wrote a song on the spot, and we just started, like, writing music together. And that turned into, we made a whole album. And uh, we self-produced it, I recorded it, mixed it, and we just put it out independently. And we put that out in April of 2018. So that was right I as- I remember. Yeah, yeah, that was right as uh, Andy was putting out his second solo album that he was obligated to, to finish because he had a, a two album deal. And he was, you know, he had to put a record out. So uh, we put it out just, it was an interesting thing for us because my wife and I were making like this, this heavy, 
almost like metalcore melodic music. Um, it was a little bit different from Black Veil, obviously. Like, obviously, it's, it's my riffs and stuff, but I wasn't shredding all over everything. There's not like, I mean, there's some leads and stuff here and there, but it's not like these crazy dual lead guitar harmony solos and stuff. It was a little bit more pulled back, but that's because we were focusing more on the songwriting. Again, you know, like a lot of these songs would start with my wife would have a vocal melody and I'd sit here on an acoustic guitar just playing, finding the chord progression and then, or put down a piano progression and then we'd just start building the song out. And we had probably like six or seven songs done. We we actually went into Eric Ron's studio. We tracked drums for six songs there. And then, uh, you know, it, it, we kept bouncing back and forth. Like, do we just put out singles? Should we put out an EP? Maybe we'll put out, well, let's do a full album. Um, and then at the same time, I started getting into EDM music. And it honestly started, I think I got so burnt out with all the metal stuff. It'll do that to you. Yeah, that... I, I found myself listening to, to artists like uh, Martin Garrix and, you know, even Marshmallow and like, like these EDM artists that are very like almost, you know, like pop EDM that have these pop singers like Dua Lipa singing on it and stuff and BB Rexa. And listening to these songs gave me a whole nother perspective of songwriting. And just even from the start of how simple things can be, but how great they can be. And I really started like analyzing vocal melodies from these pop songs and, and the EDM structure and and learning all about like, you know, I, I was blown away when I first started learning about EDM was I, I, I couldn't understand how it's a guy, his name's Martin Garrix, but there's a woman singing on it. I was like, whose who's song is it? Like, what is this? It's a DJ and he, he made this song, but there's this Dua Lipa pop, pop artist is singing on it. Like, I didn't really fully understand the whole, like, collaborative world that's like hip-hop and EDM and, and pop and all that stuff. So that that opened up a whole nother world for me. And then I, you know, I, I bought Ableton and I started diving in and I started watching, I don't know how many hours of serum tutorials and uh, just, you know, it, it took me, I started in my EDM world of, of like pop EDM. And that took me into like the metal dubstep. Like I went all the full circle, all into like the hard genres of hard trap and, and like the, you know, metal dubstep stuff. And just really learning about all these different artists and seeing the cool things they're doing. And even into producing some dubstep stuff. And I remember back in like 2011, like hearing Skrillex and I'm like, oh man, like, you know, how, how hard is it to to press <laughs> buttons on a computer and make this music? And it's like, wow, it's actually it, it's one of the really most fucking hard. It's so fucking hard. The sound design is insane, and it's. I'm. I mean, I'm. I can't sit here right now and say like, oh, I'm great at it. But I mean, I've definitely tried, and I've made songs, and uh, you know, we even put out an EDM track, my wife and I. But it's nuts, man. It's very, very difficult to be good at it. Uh, anybody can make it, but to be good at it is a whole nother thing. So that in turn with finishing this Alonia album with my wife, uh, it was in the middle of that, I was discovering all this EDM stuff. So we started making these EDM demos and like writing these other songs. I mean, we have like, I don't know, probably 20 songs that we never finished. And we have some really great ideas that we should go back and revisit. I think any 
anybody who records, especially like, uh, I know EDM producers for sure. You know, you start an idea and you're like, oh, this is great, great. And then, oh, you start another idea and you end up with this just huge list of songs that you never finish. And, or you got to go back and revisit them and, and try to finish them. But we started incorporating some of this electronic stuff into like the the hard the hard rock metal stuff. And we ended up finishing the album. We put that out. And I think, I think that was a moment that, okay, here's a full album we put out. Um, I wouldn't consider myself at all like a mastering engineer, but I mastered it myself. Uh, we didn't have anybody do it. There was no, nobody outside was involved in it other than we had two different drummers play on the album. Uh, one yeah. guy from Russia and one guy who's originally from Hungary, uh, but moved out to L- LA. We'd had these two different guys track drums and that was it. That's the only outside involvement that we had in it but I wrote all the drum parts. It was just, you know, I programmed everything. Sounds like it was the culmination of all your years of knowing how to do heavy music, then learning how to write songs the real way, and then learning how to sound design and do the electronic stuff all coming together. Yep. It's kind of all of those pieces gelled together. And then I think them hearing that production, I guess it was just kind of like, oh, like, they did this all themselves, like, okay, he can do it. So he, he figured it out. I think the biggest thing, honestly, like, I know everybody knew I could, you know, track guitars. Um, I don't know if they knew I could mix drums or anything like that or, or whatnot, but I think the biggest thing was vocal production, which my vocal production just keeps getting better and better. Like, uh, my wife and I have a new song that we're working on, and I think it's the best her vocals have ever sounded. It's just, I don't know, I just, I keep, tr- like, the thing for me is I I mean, I think it's for every producer. When you find a way that works and sounds good, you don't just go, cool, I'm gonna do this for the rest of Forever. my life this way. <laughs> it's literally the next song I record, I'm like, well, what if I try this plugin or what, maybe I should try this. Let me try, a, you know, and I'm constantly trying different things. And, and because of that, you know, of course it takes more time because you're experimenting, but that's how you grow and get better. And I, I've just, I think I've outdone myself uh, on this, this track that's not out yet, but uh, this the vocals sound amazing, and I think that was the biggest thing for for my singer a- Andy in Blackville was he was so comfortable with John Feldman uh, because I mean he is he, John Feldman pays the most attention to vocals. That's his. That's the most important thing to him. Which yep. you know, undeniably, that is the most important part of a song. So I think Andy hearing that I can do good vocal production, he's like. I mean, honestly, I don't know. I, I was never told why they decided to to see if I could do it. I think it was is also a situation of where the band was in. You know, the band had to make some changes, which kind of financially ruined the band, and we didn't really have any other options. So we are kind of in a position at, at the same time of, well, I, I I don't know. Maybe it was like a trial run. Like let's let's see, let's do this duology and see see how it comes out. And I did it and everybody loved it. And we shot music videos for both of them. You know, they're just kind of like low budget. We did them ourselves, just performance, like raw videos. And the other one's kind of uh, the, the songs of the vengeance and saints of the blood. And um, they're just kind of like raw videos, but it was a little bit more of a throwback to the old Blackville stuff. It's just like more shreddy than anything we've ever done. Just very, very technical songs. The cool thing was uh, the vengeance 
was the first song that we did. And it was an idea that we had. We even tried to do this song with John Feldman when we did Wretched and Divine. We tried to do this song and vocal melodies were put down and they just, they weren't clicking. Um, and to come back and kind of revisit the song, you know, last year, I ended up taking everything that I've learned and, and done. And I sat here and my wife was actually in Ukraine at the time. So for this song, I sat here and just did my da-da-da vocals. I hummed out a bunch of vocal melodies and recorded it. And I sent it to the guys and they're like, this sounds great. So I wrote the vocal melodies on that one, uh, doing the John Feldman da-da-da. And that was like the first time doing it with Black Veil uh, that they could see like, oh, he can, okay, he can write melody and do all this. So I really kind of, it came full circle and I, I put all those elements together. And it took like 10 years. Yeah, 10 years. And then- the next song, Saints of the Blood, was another song that's like revisiting some way old school riffs I had from this. I had this original demo, it's called Astronaut Destroyer. And I mean, the song was just like speed metal. Like I think it was at 220. The riffing was just insanely fast and I just shred over the whole thing. And I wrote this in like 2006. So obviously now I'm like, okay, well, let's slow this down a bit. It's a little too fast, obviously. Um, let's take out all the ridiculous guitar solos that are over the entire song. And I just reworked <laughs> it a bit. And it's like the main riff really kind of like became the verse riff. And so I had I had tried to put down some melodies for this one. And I had some parts that I thought like, okay, these are kind of good. And my wife FaceTimed me four hours before uh, the guys came over here. So she was visiting her family in Ukraine. And I think I was up at like 9 a.m. And I was like, they're coming at like one. We got to like, I sent her the demo and I was like, do you have any vocal melodies? And she's like, let me, let me, let me think for a second. And like a half an hour later, she FaceTimes me and she's like, okay, I sent you some voice notes and I popped them in the session. And, and then we just kind of like for four hours, we just went back and forth and uh, she had a verse, I had a verse and I recorded them both. And then we kind of combined our ideas for what the chorus became and when the guys came, I played I played it for Andy. I was like, what, like, there's two verse options. Here's a chorus. And he picked the verse that was her melody. And he liked he liked her melody more than the one I came up with. And, and I agree, it was better. And that's what we used. And so it was really kind of cool to to take everything that, like, how, the, like, the writing duo that my wife and I have become and be able to use it beyond just the two of us making music. Uh, we, we've done some crazy stuff, uh, up, up to today, you know, especially even with the EDM thing, it's turned into this weird relationship with Papa Roach and doing remixes for them. And just kind of like crazy where, where things can take you. But, you know, she's helped. That was the first song that she helped uh, as a co-writer with Black Veil. And then we've written some more songs that'll end up going on the, the new record uh, that she's been a part of. And it's just really cool to, you know, have that dynamic in my relationship to be able to be creative like that. Sounds like a rare thing. Yeah, it is a rare thing. I know. I know. There's some people that have it, but not very many. No, it's it's a it's a rare thing. So one thing that is interesting in what you're saying is, I think that a common, just a common issue that creative people have when they're starting to learn is they get overwhelmed by too much stuff. Like I need to learn how to how to play well, and then I need to learn how to record. I also need to know how to mix, but I should also know how to like write songs and I should also know theory and then this I should know sound design and all these things and it kind of overwhelms people because they don't know where to begin they 
or they kind of like just dabble a little bit in each one and don't really get good at any of them. I think that the way that you went about it is the way it's done as well is look at it like a long-term thing. Don't think about, I'm going to be able to do all these things within six months. It's more like get good at one thing. Like if you're a metal guitar player, become an awesome metal guitar player. And once you're at a comfortable, I mean, always get better, but once you're, let's just say proficient at what's needed for the job, then start exploring something else that's outside your comfort zone and get really, really good at that. Like, uh, like learning how to start songs with a piano and a vocal, then, you know, meld the two together. And once you got that and you're comfortable with it, I mean, again, always being able to improve it, but at least you're proficient in it, then can start looking at something else to start learning how to do. But I really, really like the idea of one area of focus at a time for the most part, rather than spreading yourself thin and uh, doing a bunch of things shitty. Oh, 100%. Um, Yeah, I mean, for me specifically, you know, I started playing guitar when I was 13 years old and I'm about to be 35 this month. So for me, it was very much just, you know, we didn't have, you know, social media, YouTube, any, any of that when I was 13 years old. It was just, I had an amp, a cheap guitar, and I could go to the record store and buy albums and listen to them and try to learn them by ear. That's that's kind of how how my guitar playing came about. And I would just listen to like, you know, anything from like Korn, Green Day, Blink-182 to Metallica and like... Megadeth and just learning anything I could. You know, I started out like I literally started out playing Green Day songs because that's, you know, that's something if you're just starting out playing guitar, that's what you should be learning because it's easy. Yeah, that's a good starting point. And that turned into going into learning like Metallica riffs and learning the entire Black album. And then that turned into discovering bands like uh, unearth and kill switch engage and learn like i i think one thing that i gotta give credit to the unearth guitar players like those dudes rip and i got the oncoming storm i bought that album i think it was in like it must have been like 2004 i think i had that album and i learned the entire thing and that is what taught me how to be proficient in like alternate picking like the the metal alternate picking like those style of riffs like that learning that album just made me like instantly a better guitar player like obviously it wasn't instant because I had to learn it but once I learned it I was like wow like I just became such a better guitar player uh with like riffing and and you know rhythm and all of that stuff so that was a huge moment guitar wise but I hadn't even messed with recording yet to this point. I didn't I didn't buy Pro Tools until 2005, which, you know, that's a long time ago now, but... Yeah, but dude, I think that's such a smart way to go about it. I really, really do. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of incredible guitar players who now they're able to Twitch and stream and record and all that. But I remember 10 years ago or 15 years ago, these dudes... And they're not the guy in the band who's going to record the album or whatever. They never took it to that level. But they always said to me, and I know a few dudes who said this, and they're incredible guitar players in the scene. Uh, I'm not going to learn that yet because I need to 
be awesome at guitar. And so if I start learning how to do that, I'm not going to be able to put the time into guitar that I would need to, to be like as good as I want to be. And, uh, and so they purposefully put that off. And so I think that uh, what people don't understand is that it's okay to, it's okay to go either direction. But if you decide to go the direction of being able to do lots of different things, uh, like you won't have the, you just simply won't have the time to like put 12 hours a day into guitar forever. You right. just won't. There's yeah. a point where you just won't be able to keep on doing that thing. And so if your goal is to be like the greatest virtuoso on earth in the scene, it might be tough to do that and record and songwrite and sound design and mix. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, a hundred percent. Might be tough to do all that. So I think it's really smart that you waited as long as you waited to get going with the other stuff. Yeah. And, and even when I did finally jump into Pro Tools, you know, so I had, at the time I was living in Hawaii and, you know, I had been in bands and stuff. I, I lived in Minnesota and Idaho and, and I was in these bands and, you know, I had even come out to California in 2004 and, and been promised the world with the band that I was in. And then that turned into like, well, here's a deal and you owe us $75,000. So it was just, that was like my first real experience into the music industry. And it, you know, we didn't sign it. We didn't do that. And that turned into like the band I was in, the singer went and joined the military. Um, I don't know what the other guys ended up doing. They went back to Minnesota and, and I was like, well, I'm not done yet, but I don't know what to do right now. And my dad at the time had just, he had uh, just moved out to Hawaii and started doing like construction work out there on the island of Kauai. And so I went back to Minnesota for a couple of weeks and with my mom and then I called him up and I was like, hey, uh, is there any chance you could just, I could come hang out in Hawaii for like a few months and like maybe maybe work out there uh, doing whatever. And he's like, let me see. He literally called me back the next day. He's like, I got you a job uh, with my boss and you're just going to be basically sweeping up sawdust and picking up scrap wood. And I was like, all right. And I had never been to Hawaii and I just bought a plane ticket, packed my suitcase, took my guitar and I, I flew there. And I was there for about nine months. But during that time, that that was like where I started my recording uh, journey. And uh, I I was making money from doing this construction, which, you know, I ended up, you know, I, I, I learned a lot from my dad doing, you know, construction work and, and like uh, carpentry. Uh, so I started out sweeping sawdust, but that turned into me helping actually build a house. And so that was a cool experience. I learned how to surf there, but I was, I was playing guitar a lot. And that was when I decided to take the dive into like, I'm going to, I'm going to buy my first like laptop. I got a, a Mac. It was a PowerBook G4 or something. It was like, it was before the, the Intel Macs came out. And I spent like $3,500 on this crazy laptop that now is just like, it, the thing would just be absolutely terrible. But um, paid all this money for that. And then I bought the original Mbox. And I think it came with like yeah. puzzles like 6.8 or something. And uh, that's what I started on. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I just dove in. For me, it was just, I opened the software, I plugged my guitar into this interface and I just started pressing buttons and I'm like, okay, what does what? And I just kind of started figuring it out. And for about, I don't know, I was, I was probably messing around with it in, 
in like, uh, I don't know, for like three or four months. And I ended up moving to LA to go to the recording school, uh, the LA recording school. And the funny thing is my whole time for these months working in Pro Tools, like my dad had this little uh, like drum machine and I could program the buttons to like different drum samples and and I would press them. And I didn't, I didn't even know Pro Tools had a grid mode. I didn't know what that was. I was just in slip mode. And I was literally playing, like programming my drums on this drum machine, pressing the buttons to a click track and not editing them just in real time, just do it like kick and snare on one track. How would you know if nobody ever told you? Yeah, it was just me figuring it out the hard way. Uh, still this time, this was in 2005, so I don't, YouTube wasn't even a thing yet. Let me just say something real quick for those of you youngins. Those of us who had to learn, this is going to sound like old timers talking, but <laughs> the reason that we started URM actually and Nail the Mix and all that stuff was because of our experiences learning how to record like that, because that's that's all there was back in 2005 or 2000, 2003. Like you could go to forums and get like kernels of information from Andy Sneap or whatever. And maybe there was like a tutorial from this weird recording school in Detroit that did like, that did like Motown in the sixties, but there's like no info. So we had to figure it all out ourselves. And, uh, it was, painstakingly fucking brutal. And the only people who were getting somewhere were the ones who managed to get an internship or something with somebody awesome. Those are the only people who would get any sort of fast track to learning how to do this thing. So we started URM to kind of change that so that people can actually just sit down and learn how to fucking do this and not, <laughs> not go through that. Cause yeah, it's uh, it was fucking brutal in those days. But I also think that it's impressive to me how many people I know that stuck it out. I guess those are the people I wouldn't know if I'm in the industry are the ones who stuck it out. But still, it's very impressive to me that um, when I talk to people who were in that era and still figured it out because it, it means that they don't fucking quit. Cause, cause I think that, I think that it was very discouraging back then. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was more so because I had gotten my guitar playing to a, a specific level and I was writing riffs. It was, it was something for me that I was like, I, I need a place to put my ideas down yep. and I, I, I need to like, I can't write a song, a whole song if I can't record it. Like I can come up with riffs and play a chorus progression and stuff and imagine the song, but how is it how's it going to become anything if I can't record it? So that was the initial idea of why I even wanted to get a laptop and an interface in, in Pro Tools. And I just I had just obviously heard that Pro Tools, you know, on these forums that like, oh, if you want to record, you got to get Pro Tools. I'm like, okay, I got to get Pro Tools. So, you know, I started out with I think I could only run like 28 tracks or something before I had to start you know, mixing, like consolidating things. And at the time I didn't know how to do that. So I was just making very basic, like, like I said, I was, I was, my drum programming when I first started was playing in real time, pressing buttons on this little drum machine, a kick and a snare to make the beat, which would get, you know, essentially recorded on the same audio track. And you can't mix a snare and a kick on the same track. Like that they're different, different things, but that's what I was doing. That's what I had to work with. So I had my kick and snare on the same track. I'd go back over and I'd record like 
my cymbal crashes and like hi-hats and stuff and, and I overdub it or whatever. And everything would be not perfectly in time because I'm a human pressing rubber buttons. And sometimes they don't like hit instantly, you know? It's not like a MIDI keyboard that's like more accurate. So it was weird, and but I made it work, you know? And then I would track guitars and, you know, I just, I just started experimenting and figuring it out. And, you know, the very first demos I did on that, man, I'm sure I'd, I'm sure I have them. I think I have them on a hard drive somewhere. Uh, it'd be really funny to go back and listen to them. But that turned into, you know, I started learning Pro Tools. I, I, I at least, I knew my way around it. I didn't know how, I knew very little about EQ. I just had like, tiny idea of, you know, the audio spectrum. Like I, I understood the the concept of it, how it works, but I didn't know how to apply it correctly. And I didn't know anything about compression. It, and I just kind of like, I would record, everything would be on its own track. And then I would just, you know, bounce, bounce the song out. And that was what I did. And for a long time, that's kind of where my my recording was at. Uh, I came to LA. I did go to the LA Recording School, which it's a very fast program. I think what you guys are doing is awesome, and I would never go to a recording school. I, I mean, I don't want to like discourage anybody from it, but in my opinion, I think what I do. Okay, well, okay. <laughs> uh, then then I'll take it back. Then yeah, don't don't waste your money on that because this is what you guys are doing is a lot cheaper and so much more valuable in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I'm not afraid to say that I agree because I've gone on record a lot saying that I think that for the most part, traditional recording schools are a giant ripoff. I, I think they're outdated too. Yeah. That's what it is. So it's not that like there's bad information there. It's that they've put so much money into their facilities, for instance, that it's like steering a huge cruise ship. Technology and music production evolves so fast now that they just can't keep up. So they're not generally teaching you what really, really matters. Like they'll still teach you good stuff, but they won't teach you what really matters now, cutting edge from- Exactly. You know? I, yeah, I remember, I think I had like a whole month of one class that was learning about how to record on the old tape machines. And I'm like, I've used that never because nobody does that anymore. It's like nobody did that when I was at the school in 2006. And it, that was a long time ago, you know. And, and and there's nothing wrong with learning how to do that if you don't know how to do that, if you want to learn how to do that. Sure. And it's it's like if you're one of those dudes who like really wants to know how to use tape because you love that shit or you're going to work, want to go work at the one studio in town that still has the tape. So rocking it, yeah. That's your thing. Cool, but to devote an entire month that you're paying for, like making everybody learn that, that's just dated. And that's a waste of time and money. Yeah, I think the thing that upset me the most going to that school was I really felt like it was like a nine-month program and I felt like the first five months of it was stuff I already knew. Like literally the first, like I'm already a guitar player. I know what delay and reverb are and, and, and these effects and I know the parameters of them. And literally like the first two months was just taking like lecture classes of learning the different parameters of different effects and all this stuff. And I'm like, what in the world? Like I'm paying a lot of money for this. I already know this stuff. Man, I went on a tour once of uh, one of the big, big recording schools. I won't say which one, but uh, it was near where I used to live. So anyone who who knows where I used to live know, will know. Um, because they kept trying to feed me interns because they had to fulfill requirements. 
Uh-huh. So they invited me to go on a tour of their campus. And this was one week before finals. And that's a very, very important detail because they walked me into a class that was in session. And one week before finals, they were still covering the difference between mono and stereo. So that means that they'd been there for months and months and months and months and months and months and were just getting to mono and stereo. What? Yeah, that's crazy. And they're paying how many tens of thousands of dollars? That shit was crazy. I was actually kind of shocked by it. Um, I shouldn't be, but I was. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's pretty mind-blowing. It's just kind of wrong. Yeah. Yeah, like for me, I think it was like four or five months in, we got into the Pro Tools classes. And I was like, that's what I was waiting for. It's like, I want to learn more about Pro Tools. And and we got in there. And then again, it was just like, okay, we're going to teach you how to start a session. And by the time, like the, I remember my first Pro Tools class, it was like the instructor was teaching everybody how to set up a, se- a new session and, and create some audio tracks and a MIDI track. And... By the time they were doing that, I had already a session started. I imported all these files. I was chopping things up and like making beats and like, you know, and and the instructor comes over and he's like, you've obviously done this before. I was like, oh yeah, I've been trying to figure out Pro Tools for a few months now. And I literally didn't learn anything from the class because I had already figured it out on my own. And like the, the craziest thing I think for me was, I think still up to this point, I don't think I, like programming drums for me, I still didn't understand that yet. Like, uh, you know, I, now I'll if I'm going to program drums, it's all MIDI, right? But at the time, like I, I got done with this recording school and, and the crazy thing for me was, you know, I, I was excited to get onto the Neve consoles and the SSL consoles and that's the last two months of the program. And it's like, and then it's everybody books, like to get any time in there, you have to, you know, book like after hours stuff. Mm-hmm. And by the time you get there- 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. kind of shit. Yep. By the time you get to these classes, you can't book those rooms until you get to the class, which is in like the eight, nine months of the school or whatever. And once you get there, they're constantly already booked out. And so I never, I think I had one time that I got to get into the Neve room and like mess around and-, and hook up an amp and like record it and track it. And I bet that sounded great. It, it was fun. Like that was my first time, like getting to, to really track on a, on an Eve. And I was just like blown away by it was just like a little Marshall combo amp and a 57. And I was like, really? Like, it sounds that good. Like it actually yep. sounded pretty damn awesome. Sure does. So that was, that was pretty cool to get to mess around on those consoles f- for a bit, but it was like learning those like, man, I, you know, it's like going into steakhouse to track drums. Like I don't go in there and, and get the console set up and running. It's, you know, it's whoever's there helping get it set up. It's like, all right, it's just, yeah, this is how I want to run things. I couldn't go in and start up an SSL 4000 uh, on my own. That's not my world, you know? Which is fine. I can record off of it once it's like going, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of a, for the most part, in the box, like, I mean, I have some outboard gear here. I do have, like, in my studio, I mixed through a, like, a rack-mounted SSL G-Bus compressor, mm-hmm. the hardware. So I, I do love that. And for the most part, though, I've I pretty much turned everything to almost in the box, except except for that, really. And, uh, um, but yeah, the, the, the school, it's like, you know, I got to the end of it, and 
I I really like don't know what I took from that school. I mean, it was it was it was interesting. I think it doesn't hurt to learn that stuff. But the funny thing was when I I so the first band in LA that I joined, Logan Mater was producing. It was kind of like on spec producing. Uh, mm-hmm. Him and his like writing partner at the time, Logan Mater was the first like real producer I met in LA and started working with. What a nice human being too. He's a, he's amazing. I love that guy, and I learned the simplest thing from him just watching him operate Pro Tools, which was programming drums to the grid with audio samples. And I was just like, "What? That's that's an op? You can do that?" And it just blew my mind. And I went home. I opened up Pro Tools, and I was like. Oh, that's what that grid mode means. <laughs> like, you know, I, 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 I was clueless up to this point. All it took was one thing, though. Yeah, it, it took that one thing. And then, and then that's where, like, I started being able to actually demo songs. I would then go on these forums and find, like, kick samples and, and snare samples. And So you're pointing out right here why I hate audio schools. And it's because... Those types of skills, like what you just picked up from Logan, well, not just picked up, but what you picked up from Logan, that one little thing, that's a super hireable kind of skill. That's the stuff that you should know how to do uh, in the modern age. So I wish that audio schools focused on that. Like they focus on teaching you how to edit drums, how to edit vocals, how to operate your DAW super fast. Those types of things are what should be the main, main focus, not not like learning a console. That should be an elective, in my opinion, just because the majority of audio careers now will never involve a console. Like you have to want to, you have to want that basically. Yeah. The only th- experience I have with those even now producing records is is for drum tracking. You go track drums in another studio and you'll have a console. You need all those inputs. And it sounds great to record through like the the Neve at, at Steakhouse, for example. We we track there all the time. It sounds great. Of course. But that's it. That's it. That's what that's all we, we need. I would never say it doesn't sound great. I, I agree that it does, but if you're going to school, you're going to school because you want to work. And if they should be teaching you hireable skills. Like of course you should understand signal flow and all that stuff. Of course. But what I've noticed is that kids don't come out of those schools with hireable skills. They just come out with very generalized knowledge. Um, and that I feel like that's just a, that's a ripoff, man. It should yeah. be teaching you what it is that the cutting edge people of that time period are doing and keeping up with those techniques. Like something that's come up in the past few years and gotten super popular, even though the technique has existed before that, is now part of the repertoire is like key spikes, for instance, using key spikes, that was not around, it wasn't around as like a big thing that every metal mixer did when I was mixing records, but it has uh, come up in the past two, three years, and now lots of people are doing it, and we see it on Nail the Mix all the time. That's the kind of thing that you would expect a kid to have to learn in an audio school, in my opinion. Like the kind of stuff that all, or a good amount of pros are doing over over and over, that's just a part of their repertoire. But being dated, you're sitting there learning how to operate a tape machine. Yay! Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's kind of mind blowing. I mean, again, I, you know, I went to the school in 2006 and felt like it was outdated back then. And you know, I don't know. Maybe they've changed it since since now. But I I have no interest in really caring. <laughs> but I think for me, the most valuable thing was having 
you know, the the pleasure to work with these different producers and and even that's who you really learned from was the people you did it with in real life. Yeah, the like being in the band, working with the producer and paying attention and just wondering like, oh, like what microphone are they using? Oh, how's the guitar cab mic'd up? Uh, what preamp are they using? You know, I was I was that guy that was looking at all the gear and going, okay, okay, and making notes and then seeing how it's operated, how it's, you know, everything's, you, you know, that's, that's really how I learned is just like seeing actual setups and being used in the real world. And then seeing how, you know, like, for example, John Feldman, how he put something together from scratch or... You know, it, it was a combination of operating in the studio, like the gear and how things are, are being tracked and recorded to how it's being written and formulated and put together creatively too. So it was kind of a combination of both. Same thing with like Logan Mater working when he was just in this small little studio. And uh, I would do the same thing. I would like, he he would do some crazy guitar. Mic. Mm-hmm. He would have a, a guitar cab with four mics on, on one cab. And... I was like, this is insane. But it, I mean, his tones were amazing. Like it sounded great. And I actually uh, got my first real amp from him. I bought I bought his Bogner Ubershaw off of him. That's a good one. Yeah. And uh, I, I, of course, don't have it anymore, unfortunately. But I mean, I guess not, unfortunately. I don't use that stuff anymore. I, at one point I had like 14 different amps and I sold them all. Yeah, I don't I just, blame you. I just, Same. I was like, I, I started collecting them. I had so many. And I was like, I don't have any room to put these anywhere. And like, I don't find myself using them because I went through the phase of like, you know, as a guitar player, if you're a guitar player and producer, you're going to go through this phase of constantly tweaking your tone and can you outdo it? Can you make it better? What if I use this amp? What if I use that one? And I would spend just a ridiculous amount of time just tweaking a guitar tone when I got rid of all my amps. I stopped experimenting. I'll I'll use either Kemper Axe Effects or... Mostly what I'm using now are just like VST plugins. Uh, the the plugins have gotten so good now and they sound so great that uh, I pretty much just go with that. And that saves me so much time um, where you don't have to sit there and tweak a tone for hours on end and try to, you know, capture the guitar cabinet correctly. Somebody's already done all the hard part for you. And my opinion, like, if you're in a, a world-class studio and you have, you know, the ability to to track guitars through a Neeb console and and mic up with any mics of your choice uh, and experiment with the like the greatest guitar cabinet with the best speakers and a great amp, you know, go for it. And Do why it. Why not? Why not? But most people don't have that. Or so, if that's your thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It does sound great. But for me, I think the most important thing is, you know, it's time. And if I'm able to just, you know, I, I can play through my Axe Effects, I can track my DIN, and I can then just change it at any, just like that, like the flip of a switch, and have my presets or whatever. It's like- Yeah, you're, you're all about efficiency, workflow, time management. Yep, I have a pretty good idea of how to easily get some killer guitar tone and with plugins and you know a guitar bus chain that I use. And it's just kind of like, like in that sense of where I say like, oh, I don't do everything the same same thing twice or whatever. I do have my presets, my templates, where I just pull it up and I can hit record on my MIDI drums and blah, 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 blah. I can tap the keys out or draw the notes in real quick and my guitars are already set up. And I think that's a, a, a huge time saver as well. If like, uh, I think it's something beginners definitely overlook is creating like 
a good session template where you can just start instantly and be creative. You're not, let me create 800 tracks and now I got to import all my plugins. It's like, you're just, you open it, it's got everything and you're ready to go. It's it's so key to have that. We have a actually a really good podcast episode on this topic is the one with Matt Good, just for everyone listening if you want. A lot of going deep on templates, um, the right kind of templates. Uh, check that one out. I'm just saying the right kind of templates because there's a good and a bad way to use them. I think the way you're describing is what they're good for, especially if it's one that you've tweaked over the years. And so it's it's like your custom template for your workflow that uh, that's been developed and developed and developed. And when you just when you hit go, it's already awesome. Uh, I think some people feel like grabbing other people's templates is going to make them magically better or something. And it doesn't really work that way at all. Yeah, I, I don't think so. It's definitely something that's, you know, accumulated over the years of, uh, yep. you know, trying different guitar tones and creating, like I've created this insane, you know, like it's not a, a plugin, obviously. I mean, it's it like I can get very similar tones to like Hellraiser bass plugin, uh, but I've, I've created my own bass chain that's like, you know, it's it's two tracks. You know, I have my tone part, I have my the the low end, and then I've got the bus that it goes to. And I think I've got like 17 or 18 plugins in this entire chain. But it's just it's just like an instant thing. You track a D a bass DI and you pop it in both of these tracks and it just sounds massive. And it's just having things like that at your your disposal to like, you can instantly like, if I have a band or an artist or, or my band or whatever, or I'm just writing a song and creating, I don't have to sit here and waste my time. Oh, let me try to get a good bass tone. It's like, it's already there. I can tweak it from there to make it even better or make it fit whatever it is I'm doing. But it's already like the starting point sounds great. And same with the drums. Like I'll start with program drums, but it's, you know, I have a blend of different custom samples and, uh, you know, even some drum shots and stuff in there. And like, uh, you know, I've just built my own like triggered kit that just sounds crushing from the start. And I think that's such a huge thing, especially if you're working with a, you know, if you're a producer working with another band, uh, for the band to be in the studio and you're writing a song. And that was something that I, I always, uh, you know, I didn't necessarily know the steps to get that right off the bat. But working with like John Feldman, we started writing a song and just like everything sounded good. Like we would record it and and it would just sound great. Man, the first time that I ever worked with a real producer, like, you know, real budget, real producer, everything just sounded great. The moment that they started miking up the drums and getting going, it was already just a little EQ. It was already awesome. I was like, whoa, this is the big leagues. Like, it's awesome out the gate with with those people. Sounds like the same experience you had at Feldman's. Like, whoa, it is already awesome. Yeah, well, we, I mean, we even, I had that experience uh, on our second record, Set the World on Fire, and we recorded it Pulse uh, in LA here. And they had SSL board there, but we tracked, they had like a, a rack of uh, Neve 1073s and we tracked all the drums through that. And that was the experience of like, just getting the drum tones, like li just live, just the toms, like everything just sounded, I was like, this sounds phenomenal. It sounds like it's already mixed. Like what What in the world? And it's just, 
that that was like a mind blowing moment for me. I was like, wow, like, you know, it, it is really great to be able to record through the that that top quality gear. And then it was also a mind blowing experience when we did go to Feldman's because I was like, where's the big console? Like, where is it? He doesn't have one. And he's recording through totally, and that was another gear learning experience for me of, okay, you don't need a big console to do this, obviously. This is John Feldman we're talking about. And it's just, you know, a different setup, a different a different take. He has great preamps, great mics, obviously. But, uh, you know, you don't need that giant console uh, to make to track drums and, and make a record. Oh, what matters is the operator. You know, that's the person using it is the thing that matters. Yep. That was just, you know, again, like the most valuable lessons that I've learned in my career have been like, as far as the, the audio production part goes is it's just work having the, the luxury to have worked with these different producers and be in these studios and, and different environments and, and just seeing how wildly different each producer is from each other, you know, like it, it's, it's crazy to go from making a record with John Feldman, uh, to making a record with Bob Rock. Totally different experience. I can imagine. Both amazing guys, but totally different. Totally different take and vibe. And it also helps me kind of develop my own, like I'm not trying to take somebody's style and go, I'm going to do exactly what they do. It's just kind of like I analyze like how different people do different things. And John Feldman's very much involved in the songwriting where Bob Rock was more about not so much involved in the songwriting, but like, Let's figure out how we can, you know, get get some cool sounds or whatever. And and you know, very it's kind of funny because again, you know, I, I I'm as a guitar player, I'm coming up with the like I discovered the Kemper profiling amp when it was like first put out, and I jumped on board immediately, and I ended up showing these guys like like uh, John Feldman got one because I brought it into the studio and he was intrigued by it. Bob Rock, same thing. He ended up buying one. And it was just kind of funny to see that, like, these, I, I was kind of turning these guys onto this new technology. And now it's like something that everybody's using. And, you know, it, it's, it's cool. It's interesting to see who are the guys that adopt stuff early. Like, I'm not surprised that John Feldman adopted it early, you know? Yeah. You showed him something that works great. Why wouldn't he do it? Yeah. I mean, it's a space saver, a time saver. And I think he is definitely a guy that's in the the place where he wants, to, like, you know, time is everything. So he works very quickly. Yeah, because he's got a family too. Yeah. Question on a slightly different topic, but still same topic. Uh, so let's not name names here with this question. So without naming names, but, you know, since you're both in a band and a producer, obviously, you know how important it is to be able to hang like the hanging out part, like being a cool enough person for people to be able to hang out with you for weeks and weeks on end. Yeah. That's true on tour. It's true in the studio. It's more true in the music industry, I think than in a lot of places because you're so locked in with the same small group of people through so many highly stressful situations. So that said, for those who haven't really been in the experience of a really bad session with a producer, um, can you talk about, from an artist's perspective, what it's like to have a bad session and why you really need producers to have a good personality? Like, why is it so important? 
It's just because we tell people all the time that your social skills are just as important as your technical skills, but we rarely get to hear from like the artist's perspective why that's so true. I mean, for me personally, you know, I've, I've had those experiences on both sides of things. You know, we've worked with producers that have been just like, every day has been absolutely amazing and it's been a blast. And then, you know, having some like, say songwriting sessions that are just totally bizarre, uncomfortable, awkward. And you're just like, you can't wait to leave. So this is, this is the importance of why it's important to hang because if you're making the artist feel uncomfortable and you might not even know, you know, you might just, it, it might just be, you have no idea, but I think it's important to know. Like you might not know that you're making them uncomfortable. Yeah. But, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's really important that you should know. Yeah. Because if you are doing that, the artist doesn't want to be there. They're not going to hire you. They're not going to say anything good about you. You make them feel uncomfortable. They're not going to be creative. They're not going to feel like you have to feel comfortable to be creative, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Like you could be in some, in some circumstances, I guess, being kind of in, in like, like, for example, you know, I've been in uncomfortable situations that then be, you know, became a learning lesson, et cetera. And, but to be in like a creative songwriting session, for example, and the person you're doing this co-write with is just like n not on the same page, doesn't know anything about you, uh, you know, doesn't have a studio to record in, and you're just like sitting in a living room and just having some conversations and then like just making the most, like what, how, how is this a songwriting session? It's just the weirdest thing ever. And like, all you're thinking about is I can't wait to get out of here and leave and go home. I never want to come here again. I've had weird experiences like that. So I think it's very important, like from the producer aspect of when an artist comes, you know, you got to like, shoot the shit for a little bit and like get to know them, like what they're about, like what they're, what they, their goals are, like hear some stories, like listen to their music and, you know, make them feel like they matter and that you care. And you're not just like, all right, matter. I'm going to do it. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole point. It's like, it, it's very important. And I think just having the ability to just kind of hang and, you know, bro down or, or whatever and, and, be able to communicate, talk, have fun, joke, and also get work done and create, you know, create a great, whether it's a, a co-writing session, you're writing a song, make a great song, or if you're making an album or, or a single or whatever, you're producing a track or, or if you're just engineering something like, I think in all aspects, it's just, I mean, again, it just comes down to really like basic human people skills. You just, just be a good person, um, be kind, be nice, but, Brush your teeth. Yes, yes. Shower, brush your teeth. Don't show up stinky. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, I'm saying that for a reason. Me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's a, that's a real thing. The thing is, though, even if you're a good hang, that doesn't mean there's never going to be uncomfortable situations, which is why it makes it that much more important for you to have good rapport with each other, trust each other trust that everybody's got the same goals in mind because when you're working on a project that has like a lot of strong-minded people, kind of like you, Andy and Feldman, if there's not that bond already there, those types of clashes could 
could fuck everything up. But if you do have that bond, you know everybody's got the best interest of the project at heart. They just have different opinions on how to go about something. Yeah. That's a, that's different. That's not the same thing as someone is making you feel uncomfortable because they don't get you and they don't even want to be there and they're just fucking off-putting. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. a totally different thing. Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Because there is going to be conflict. There is going to be conflict in a session. Oh, There's for no sure. way around it. Yeah. Yeah, especially if you, you know, you when you have multiple people who are are writing and you know I, I I'm I don't know for every band but I, I think in most bands there's there's usually like either the guy or a couple guys that kind of do the majority of the writing and kind of have the ideas yeah. and, and put them together. So when when you are that of course you're gonna have for me those conflicts were early on because I was that I was closed minded. And now I think, you know, going back to that like is it is it a, a weird thing to produce your own band? It's like, I think now for me, it's 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 not difficult to do because I am so open-minded. I've I've gone down the path of EDM production and and making EDM music to full-on heavy metal stuff like, you know, extreme metal and and working with different bands. I've had different experiences, both good and bad. And really, I think you know, especially making the Alonia album with my wife. Uh, I learned so much from her as a as a top line writer, and just mind blowing for me to see another just experience of you know she we call the her bathroom Narnia because she'll she'll take like I'll, I'll bounce a song, give it to her, and for her to go write lyrics and melodies, she'll go she always goes into like the the takes a bath or something and, and writes, and she'll be in there for like forty five minutes, and then comes out. And then like, here's the idea. And it'll just be like mind blowing. I'm like, this is so good. Like how did, where, where are you going when you go in there? And it's the same thing. You know, we talk with like about Andy, when he goes to write lyrics, he'll go outside. And it's like, we always say like joking around, like he goes outside and, and talks to aliens and they they speak to him. And <laughs> he cause, comes with this crazy, like he'll be out for 20 minutes and then come in with this like insane piece that we're like, dude, what? Like, <laughs> and it's just cool. You know, people people have their gifts for sure. I know quite a few people who get it in the shower. Yeah, yeah. That's where the idea hits them. I don't know if it's just something about like the water running or something. I don't know. I mean, I find myself coming up with melody ideas in the shower and I'm like jumping out like a ah, voice note on my phone, you know, trying to record it. And But just learning a lot from her too, like in the vocal sense of melody and, and just analyzing melody and, you know, I think creating a, a memorable melody is one of the most important, yet one of the hardest things to do. So like create that that hook. And absolutely studying like pop melody is very helpful with that because that that for me even shows how simple it can be, yet how how catchy and hooky it, it can be at the same time. Man, I actually think that's more difficult than writing complex music. I think writing a simple melody that is, what's the right word? Infectious. Like an infectious, simple melody that just becomes a universal thing because it's so good, but it's so simple. To me, that's the hardest thing to do. I agree. Way harder than just throwing down a ton of notes. Not saying that like complex styles of music, I'm not talking down at them or saying they're not hard. I just think that 
the hardest thing is to come up with something simple, but that's super effective. Yeah. Oh, totally agree. Personally, uh, sometimes I find myself just having to walk away for like 15 minutes and, and clear my head to come back to it because uh, I always find myself when I'm even purposefully trying to come up with something like simple, I'm always, I'm, I'm still just overdoing it. I'm, I'm trying to be too complex with it. And that's where I'm like- Overthinking it. Overthinking it, 100%, yeah. So in order to stop overthinking it, is it like you have to take yourself out of the situation consciously so that whatever is getting in the way kind of shuts the fuck up a little bit? I think so. I mean, it can be- I mean, I think every situation's different. Every every song has its own, you know, like creative process. And, you know, a lot of people will ask me like, oh, how, how's your songwriting process? Like, what do you start with? How does, it's like, every, every song's different. It could be a guitar riff, it could be piano, it could be a vocal, it could be a drum part, it could be a voice note on my phone. You know, it, it doesn't, it could be anything. It could be a the sound of a bird chirping outside during a, like a rainstorm or something. And you're like, oh, and it just sparks this creativity and this inspiration. It's, it, you know, it's, you have to find inspiration in, in different ways and it comes in different ways and forms. I think something for me personally, that's very inspiring, which I don't do enough is being out in nature. Like I love to go to crazy places and do crazy hikes like Zion National Park and uh, these crazy hikes in Hawaii. Uh, I wish I could do them more, but that is just, I don't know, something about like how insane this planet is like in some places and and putting yourself in these experiences can just, for me, it's very like, it clears your mind. It's almost like a, a form of meditation, I guess you could say. Uh, I mean, it's not meditating, but it's different. It's almost like a, men, like a mental enema. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And for me, it can take anything from, okay, it's not working, let me, let me walk away for 15 minutes and just step away from it and not even think about it. And then I'll come back and try again to, it could take five years later, the idea all of a sudden just boom, there it is. Got it. So do you find that your best ideas are the ones that happen like a lightning bolt, boom, or is it more carving them out? It's hard to say because I, I want to say like the lightning bolt, boom, just like out of nowhere, those ideas but again, that's maybe because it's more exciting because you're like, holy shit, this is awesome. Like, this is so great. This is the best thing I've ever done. But, but it just happened. It just happened. Yeah. But I mean, who knows? In five years, you could look back at that idea and go, oh, that sucks. Because that tends to be a thing, especially for songwriter, producer. Like, you're going to make a song. You're going to think it's the greatest thing ever. And a year from now, you're going to go back and be like, oh, that totally sucks. This is so much better. Okay, how, let, me re, let me rephrase. Since you're a writer obviously you're used to having your riffs thrown out, ideas thrown out. Like, obviously that's part of doing it for real is getting comfortable with the idea that a certain percentage of what you write is never going to be used just because you can't always write great stuff. You have to write a lot of stuff so that you can, the more you write, the more awesome stuff you're going to write, but there's always going to be a ratio of shit to not shit. Oh, a hundred percent. It's know. not all great. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be like, I think 60% shit, like 35% okay. And like 4% really good. And 1% fucking incredible. Like that's some, some tweak of that is what I feel like it is, but I feel like, so you got to get comfortable with just letting go of the shit that's 
not good. So out of your ideas that do make it, so take out of the equation whether you like them five years later or not. Out of the ideas that have made it to records, okay, the ones that did not get thrown out, do they tend to be the boom riffs that happen, the boom ideas that just come like a lightning bolt or or more carved out ideas or there's no no pattern, some of each? Uh, I would say some of each. Uh, there's definitely a lot of the instances of like, Boom, the idea just hits and like song is basically structured, written in like two hours. Mm -hmm. And it's like, here's, here it is. And then it's just a matter of like filling it out. It's like a freebie. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely happened, but there's like, like for example, Blackville song in the end, uh, that song literally started out kind of as like a rap song. Like it was nothing like what turned into what the song where where the session went and how that song came to be. So rock song that has a lot of uh, epic orchestration and huge sound and uh, started as a rap song. Big chorus. Yeah, big chorus, big everything. Yeah, the session did. It, it started just like literally almost the whole day. So, I mean, I guess in a sense you could say this is a, like in the matter, in the course of a day, in a session, in a studio, it's like everyone's beating their head on this idea that's just not what anybody wants to be doing. Just basically wasting a whole day. Like this is just not it, not happening. To then switching gears and instantly going, boom, here we go. Now we're on the right path. We found and that, it. And that became in the end, yeah. Okay, just so, just I just want to make sure I'm understanding correctly. So you're sitting there working on this idea that started as a rap song somehow and nobody's feeling it, but for some reason you just keep going as opposed to ditching it. And then at some point in that session, the spark hits. Yeah, it was enough is enough. Like this isn't working. We have to do something different. And that's where like that, that lightning bolt struck and okay. But did you keep the same, like it was by, we had to do something different. Do you mean something different to this pre-existing song or did you basically ditch it and start from scratch? It was, it was pretty much like, just let's throw this away. Okay. And start over. Okay, so it started as a rap song. You threw that out. How did you then start over? I don't even know thinking back. It was- It's probably all a blur. Making that whole album was crazy. But I mean, we had many days like that, you know. I can't recall the exact- Fair enough. It wasn't like that was the, the one time it happened. It happened all the time like that. You know, we would be, we, there, were, there were so many songs. Like I have these sessions where I'm like, from that, that album that I'm like, what is this? Like, you know, it, it's just, there was just some some madness that was being created. And like, you know, like I said, uh, we would sometimes write four songs a day. And out of those four songs, sometimes none of them got used. But the mm -hmm. ideas got put down, like the start of them. So there's ideas there. And I, I've pulled them up before and I just laugh. It's like, like I can tell in there that there's a good song somewhere in these ideas, but it's not a Black Veil song. It's somebody else. It's not... Like so, that's kind of the situation. I was like, "Well, there, like, there's good songs there. This could be a good song. I could see where it could go somewhere." But at that time, being like, "We're making a Blackville record. This is not it. It's we gotta go. We gotta stop doing this and do something different." And there was a lot of moments like that making that record. You know, I think that that's one of the biggest differences between bands that do well and bands that don't like, so for instance, uh, have you ever noticed that 
there's a, a big thing that local bands do. Local bands who tend to stick around for a long time. Like, you know, there's some local bands who've been around for like 20 years. Yeah. And have never gone anywhere. And one of the reasons I think that is, is because they get too precious about everything that they write. So I know bands personally who, my band started in 2000, okay? Mm -hmm. They had already been around in the local scene for years when my band just started and they are still around now and they're still playing the same nine songs that they've been playing this whole time. And I've seen that lots of times. So it's not just one, one example, but I think that that's something that basically is one of the biggest mistakes an up and coming or a band that wants to graduate from the local level can do is to get too precious about shit they write and not hold their standards high enough. Everyone I know who's in a band uh, who's done well are super brutal about their material and are have no problem throwing shit out if it's not right. Just get rid of it. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I know several bands that have, uh, you know, made a whole record and then they throw the whole album out and yeah. write a new one. Because it's not right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's, you got to be okay with knowing that not everything that you do is going to see the light of day. You know, there's, you're going to have, that's why you just, you have to write and write and write and, and always try to like outdo yourself. But in a sense of, you know, guitar playing, uh, me and my other guitar player, Jinx, we would always, you know, say that we're, oh, we're always trying to outdo ourselves with guitar and everything. And, and I think we've, we've done that throughout, throughout the time, but I've transitioned more into the area of trying to outdo myself as a songwriter. And I've stopped caring so much about maybe making like, like, of course I, I love make writing great riffs and, and, and memorable well, solos yeah, that, and things like that. DNA. It's important, but yeah. But my focus has become more about like, how do we make a killer hooky chorus that is just going to grab everybody? How do we like, what do we do to incorporate, you know, uh, elements that are in music right now. And, and I, th I think for me, it was, you know, learning EDM production over the last three years helped me get an edge on like, you know, bringing in these different influences and styles. And maybe it's not going to be prominent in the mix where, uh, you know, it's like, oh, here here comes the the crazy EDM part. Like the corn dubstep record. Yeah, yeah. Which I actually think is badass. It is cool. And I would not be opposed to doing something like that. Uh, actually, the, the song my wife and I are going to put out soon it's interesting. It's very different because we kind of, we were on this, like we're making rock music and then we're making EDM music. And it was like, do we, this is like two separate things. Like how, how do we balance this? So we actually took like this song we did, we took the EDM format, but created like a, a rock song out of it. So it's kind of, it's like, you know, it starts out with the verse and it, has like this rise, it builds up, builds the tension. And instead of having like a big, heavy electronic drop, it hits this big rock chorus. Mm -hmm. Then like the breakdown is just like this extremely heavy, like screaming part I'm doing. And my wife is screaming too, uh, together. And it's just like this insanely like heavy, brutal part into this like beautiful soft vocal. And it's just, I don't know, it's just a different take on like, you know, it's not the typical like rock format. And it's, it's cool. I don't know. It's like trying different things like that and just trying to like make something different. And I think it's cool to, to try to bring 
different elements of different music styles together. I mean, that's how new genres are created, anyways. Yeah, and I think it's important. You know, like if you look at like the the hip hop, EDM, and pop world, it's like, you know, they'll they'll mash everything together. And I don't see why rock music has to be left out of that. I think it's okay to bring different elements into it. I know a lot of people might be like, no, it's just, it's gotta be heavy all the time. And, and you know, there are people that, that just want that. And so you don't want to like- Alienate them. Yeah, alienate yeah. your fan base or whatever. But it's, if you can subtly bring elements in that kind of make it go, oh, this is a little different. This is, this makes me feel something different. Not just like, oh, here's some more music. Here's more more songs. There also is the, as an artist, as a songwriter, and as you, you know, as I can take my own experience from 10 years ago starting and being very just, I, I want to play metal. I want to be in a metal band. I want to make heavy music and, and crazy fast riffs and rip solos. And I want everything to have the fastest double kick in it to like where I am now, where it's like I've, you know, unreleased stuff, but have, have you know, demoed out full on EDM pop songs. I'm not saying to like merge those two worlds. So that might be a little too weird, but growing as an artist you're not going to, I mean, like you said, some local bands are on those same nine songs. Some people maybe don't, don't find that need or, or want to, you know, try new things. And it's like, if they're happy, if you're happy doing what you're doing, then I mean, you know, by all means be happy doing what you're doing. But for me, I'm always exploring new things and I want to try something else. And, and your fan base can like, like maybe the first record is your best record. Uh, nothing will ever beat it. It's like, okay, well, we're going to make a new record now. And if it sounds a little bit different, you've got to understand that we're trying to grow as songwriters and artists and, and we don't want to just keep writing the same 10 songs. And you can't write the same 10 songs. That's the thing is you're never going to be able to put yourself back in the place that you were when any record happened. So, it, exactly. Yeah, yeah, like I that happens to heavy bands all the time. Oh, the first record was the awesome one, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, that's, you hear that all the time, but I think that criticizing a band for changing or evolving or whatever is just, it's kind of unfair because a record really is a combination of what the, you know, the experiences and, um, and just that moment in time, like the, exactly what happened to happen at that moment in time where everybody was emotionally, where everyone was mentally, like you can't recreate that scenario. You're at a completely different point in your life. So when bands do that, like try to recreate their first record sometimes, I feel like sometimes they end up sounding like a cover band of themselves because you can't really put yourself where you were. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. And I mean, that's why when... When Black Veil did this uh, duology, The Night, those songs sound like the old school Black Veil in a sense because those riffs were from that time period that just yep. never got used. So it was revisiting ideas that were from that time period. That wasn't like, oh, we just ripped out this brand new stuff. Like it was produced now and put together as now. It wasn't the exact idea how it was back then, but it was, oh, this riff. And this riff, let's this will work together. Yeah, that's different than what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, 100%. But yeah, it's it, it, you're never like, I, I mean, going back, so we just did this, we put out Resitchi's Wounds, which is the re-record 10-year anniversary of our first album. And we did a live show from the Whiskey playing the album in its entirety. So there's songs that we haven't played in 10 years, some songs we never played ever. 
And like going back and just relearning it all, you know, even from re-recording it, it's like, you know, when, when we're recording, you can, you can punch, 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 make everything perfect. So learning it in its entirety, it's very complex. And it's like, I'm sitting here scratching my head going, how did we write this stuff? Like, how, <laughs> how did I come up with this riff? How did Jinx come up with that riff? Like, how did we put this together? It's pretty, like, musically, it's insane. And that's just, like you said, that's, that's where our headspace was at the time. We were, it, again, it was our first record. We had, it was just trying to outdo every song, outdo the next. And like, can we write the most complex, insane guitar parts that are like these, you know, classical fugues on heavy guitars, like speaking back and forth to each other in sections. And it was just like madness. And I, I have tried, like I've sat here and tried to be like, I want to write something super insane and complex. And it's just, it's not the same style. It's different. It's evolved. My, it, it's everything is different now. Which is how it kind of should be. Yeah. I think. Yeah. That's why music changes. <laughs> If it was the same all the time, it would get boring. The th beautiful thing about it, which I wish fans understood, is those records that you love aren't going anywhere. Like, you can still listen to them. Yep. That's what I always say. It's like, if you want, you want a record like that record, go listen to that record. It's that easy. It's dependable. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. it's going to be the yeah. same every time. It's not getting deleted. I wish that the audience was more understanding of that but then again how can they be they're not the ones making it and so sure yeah i mean you're always going to have criticism with yeah anything you do that you're putting out into the world especially nowadays exactly. with the social media and, and youtube and anything it's like if you put yourself out there people are going to come for you either positively or negatively and it's no just, way around it there's yeah there's no way around it so yeah is that something that uh you had to learn how to deal with or or you always been just naturally thick-skinned? Because, dude, there's no way to survive in this game without being able to take a certain amount of abuse coming at you from the public or from certain people in the industry. Like, like you have to be able to handle a lot of shit. Sometimes I find some people are just born that way to where they don't... It just They just don't have that chip in them that it bothers them. But then other people... Uh, they learn how to deal with it. Which one are you? I would say maybe a little of both. So I kind of grew up, I, nobody taught me this. I just, I don't know how I learned this. It was just my mindset from a very young age of, um, if I want to achieve something in my life, I can, I can do it. I can, if I want something bad enough, I'll get it. And for me, that was, I started playing guitar and I was like, all right, I'm going to be a rock star one day. I'm going to, I'm gonna, this is what I wanna do. Before before I picked up a guitar when I was 13, uh, I was obsessed with the idea of joining the Air Force and becoming a fighter pilot. That's what I wanted to do with my mm -hmm. life. And I discovered Metallica and started cool playing goal. guitar. Yeah, I mean, it's still yeah. badass, but like yeah. uh, I picked up a guitar and it just like, it, it totally changed my course of life and, and changed my path. And I was like, okay, nope, scratch that. This is what I really wanna do. And I just started playing every day and, you know, I would go to school and, and, you know, go on those like college field trips and find out what college you want to go to and what you want to do with your life. And I was like, I already know what I want to do with my life. I already know what I'm going to do. And they're like, oh, what, what's that? I'm like, I'm going to be a rock star. And people would just laugh at me, you know, just laugh. Think about it. It is, 
it's one of these things where I would never advise somebody to actually try to do it. <laughs> right. Because it's, you're, the odds of failing are enormous. But that's part of it because you're going to fail. It's the, yes, it's the, it's true. can you pick yourself back up and then learn and try again? Because that's like, I think getting success in anything is you're never going to succeed the first time. No. Like, are, like you're, you have to try something and you're most likely probably going to fail at it. And then you have to take that experience and learn from it and try again. And if it doesn't work again, you have to figure out why it's not working and learn more and adjust something, maybe change something. And you have to keep trying. Like, I think a lot of people think that you become successful just like, oh, it just, it just happened. It's like, no, it doesn't just happen. Like, <laughs> you don't you don't understand. Like, I'm about to be 35 years old. I started playing guitar when I was 13. Like, mm -hmm. it doesn't just happen. Like, it is, it's like a, it, my entire life that has gone into trying to make a successful career of what I've, you know, of where I've gotten to this point. And, and I'm, you know, I'm not at a point that I'm like, oh, cool, I'm chilling, I'm good. It's like, no, I'm, I'm still working towards the next thing and the next thing. And like, it's, it's just something that, you know, I think a lot of people can get discouraged from like, oh, something didn't work. And then, you know, well, okay, I guess I'll, I'm not going to do that again. And it's like, if you, how would that work if you create, like, if you want to be a, a, like a business person and you're going to create a successful business, you think, <laughs> like, I mean, maybe some people get lucky and the first idea works, but like, I, I don't know. I don't, I, you know. I, I, I can tell you that there were like at least five different iterations of URM before found the one that worked. Yeah. For, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's it's just a matter of, you know, you got to try something. If it doesn't catch on and work, you you learn, you change it, you you analyze it, you find out why it's not working. If you, if you can figure out why sooner than later, that's that's better. But at the same time, like especially speaking about music, and if if you're an artist and you're being creative, it's you don't want to just go find what's working and then copy that and just regurgitate that and 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 write that and put it out. You have to. I think the most important thing you can do is be aware of what is working and what's not. But you have to stay true to yourself and you have to make music that you like and that you enjoy because the second you start catering to what you think other people want it's all the all the fun and the joy that you get from making music which is why any of us start doing it in the first place it's just it's thrown out the door it's gone and then it's not fun anymore and then what's and the point of doing predict, it and you can't predict anyways what yeah. people are going to like right nobody can predict it you're just in you're just in tune with that or you're not, basically, in my opinion. And and a lot of times you you might be onto something that isn't exactly it at the time, but things change so quickly, especially now, that what you're doing, like you might get discouraged and like, oh, I don't know, nobody's gonna like this or nobody likes what I'm doing. But if you just keep doing it and you keep making it better and better, that can become like the next hot thing or the next trend. You know, trends change so quickly now and it's like it doesn't necessarily matter if it's like I, I often find if if you're trying to recreate what's already popular, you're you're already behind the game and you're gonna lose because by the time you create something and put it out, it's it's already shifting into something else. Yep. Like and I discovered that with producing EDM music and like 
seeing how fast things evolve in that world where I'm like, oh, this song's really cool right now. I'm going to learn how to read. And it was, it was just a learning experience, you know. I'm not like pumping out songs or anything in the EDM platform, so to say, but like to like learn how to do that style and recreate it. By the time I, I'm like, cool, I can do this. It's already changed. And then it's like, oh, this is the next trend and this is the sounds people are using and this is what's happening now. And then, okay, you learn that. And then, and that's why I went through so many different styles from like pop EDM to trap music, to hard trap, to dubstep. And I, I went through all the phases of like all these different genres because it's just, that's that learning experience for me took me down that path of discovering all these different artists and seeing the trends and, and who's doing what and like going back and studying where it came from. And like, you know, guys like, you know, you could get a lot of hate for something that you're doing and not even know how big it could be. Like Steve Aoki bringing rappers into EDM and people just being pissed at him. Like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you're ruining this to becoming one of the, the biggest, you know, EDM DJs in the scene. So it's- You gotta be fearless. Yeah, I guess going back to the art, like, was I born thick-skinned or or did I have to learn how to be? It's like, it's a little bit of both. You know, I had that like, that I'm going to be a rock star in school and everyone laughing at me thing. You're going to do it no matter what anybody says. I had already decided I was going to do it no matter what anybody said. And I think people laughing at me just made me like, oh, like it, it like fueled my fire even more. I was like, oh, you don't know what I'm capable of. Why are you laughing at me? Like, I don't find this funny. Like, I'm serious. <laughs> and there's yep. like, yeah, okay. And, and it's just like little things like that I can really totally discourage relate. somebody or it can do the opposite and just like, make you want to pursue it even harder. Man, I remember when, so I quit production to start URM, cold turkey, going from doing real well to suddenly zero. And I remember telling my family and stuff and like people close to me that I'm I'm uh, walking away from a six-figure job to start something that's going to do zero. And they're like, trying to talk some sense into me. It feels a lot like when I wanted to play guitar and people would try to, you know, yeah. the same thing yeah. you're talking about. It, it felt like the adult version of that. Same thing. Like people were trying to advise me against it or trying to tell me that I'm kind of nuts. Like yeah. why give up something good? Like you're already doing well. I'm doing it anyway. So I'm just letting you know. Yeah. Like, yeah. If you, yeah. This is happening. And, uh, and this is entertaining that you don't believe I could do it, but uh, just check back in two years. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, that, that's that's it. It's like if if you're if you want something bad enough, you'll make it happen. You'll make it work. And it's just I I think a lot of it is your mindset, and you know it, it's it's mind blowing for me to see how many people really don't believe in themselves because I always I always tell people it's like you know you're. Nobody else can decide for you what you're going to do with your life or what you're going to be successful with or, or what you're going to fail at because those people aren't you. Only you know what you're capable of and what you're willing to, the lengths you're willing to go to achieve something. So if you want something bad enough and you're willing to work for it and do whatever it takes to like become and learn enough to do that, then nothing can stop you. No, somebody saying, oh, that's not going to work. That shouldn't stop anybody. No, of course not. That's because like, they're it's not, ridiculous. They're not in your head. That's yeah. So, it, as a teenager, it used to piss me off, but uh, it didn't piss me off when it came when it happened around URM because by then I was mature enough to realize that, well, 
I'm the one who's got the vision here, not them. So right. of course they're not going to understand. They're not going to understand it. Yeah, yeah, this isn't their thing. And so all they see is me taking a massive risk, wa- walking away from something super stable that is yeah. like the goal for a lot of people's entire careers. People that's love security, what, you know. Yeah, that's yeah. what they see. They don't yeah. they can I can't expect them to understand my vision for something. Um yeah. now they get it obviously, but uh you're the one with the vision. So you're the one who has to determine what, what path you're going to go on to get there, or if you're going to even go on any path to get there in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I agree. Okay. But that's one kind of, uh, negativity you have to have a thick skin for. The other one is just pure abuse and hate. And that's different. Being in the band that I'm in has been the last 10 years. It's just been, you know, Black Veil Brides is a very controversial band. People either it's absolutely hate it or it's the opposite. It's just like, it's nobody can compare Black Veil, we're gods, we're the best band in the world. You know, it's like, it's one or the other. Maybe over the last 10 years, we've proven ourselves that like, you know, we're not, we didn't go away. You know, people said, oh, you guys won't make it a year. You won't make it two years. You won't make it three years, four years. Well, here we still are and still- Still here, still doing it. Making another record, still doing it. Obviously times are different. We can't tour right now, but you know, it's like, all right, we'll do live shows and we'll do live stream shows. And we did that already and it was great. And we're gonna keep doing that. And it's like, if you have some insane goal in your mind, like, oh, you wanna be an astronaut or you wanna be a rock star, or you're gonna become the next greatest music producer. Nobody can tell you that you can't do that. People will tell you you can't do it, but- if you tell yourself you can't do it, then you won't do it. You're making your own bed the moment you start doing that. Yeah. If you start to doubt yourself, then that's it for you. Like you're you're already setting yourself up to fail. But if you know that nothing can stop you and nobody can get in your way. Well, I think there's a level of doubt that's just natural. Like Oh, of course. Is this gonna work? But it's it's hard to explain because I know exactly what you're saying. The moment you start to doubt yourself is the moment you fail. But it's a fine line because there are times where obviously if something hasn't worked and you're taking a massive risk, you gotta and it and it's not working yet, you gotta definitely ask questions and definitely can get scary at times. But I think that the bigger picture is do you believe that you can make it through that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not that like you aren't gonna have downs because everybody has downs. It's more about how you let those downs affect you overall, really. Of course, of course. Like taking any kind of like entrepreneurial, you know, dive or or even, you know, if you want to be in a band and you want to be in a successful band or anything, it's you're always going to have those moments of like, I don't know. I don't know if this is the right move. Is this going to work? Is this not going to work? Like, uh, and you know, because it, it can be scary. That it's, it's just more so I think of thing of like, it can be scary. Yes. Because there is no sure. It's not like you're going out to get hired at Best Buy and you either get the job or you don't. It's you have no clue what could happen, but you're you're just doing what you believe is mm-hmm. what is the right thing. And you're it, it's automatic that you're gonna have, you know, self doubt and stuff. And it can be scary, but it's persevering through that and going, No, this I I know this is gonna this is it's got to be it, or or if something isn't working, like you said, you know, you gotta you gotta look at why and see is there something I can do to change it to make it better. You gotta analyze things, and I think a lot of people just 
start from the aspect, like I, I've noticed this trend. Uh, people doubt themselves and are afraid of failure so they don't even try. Yes, I've seen that many times. And that's the biggest failure of all, is not even trying. You already failed because you didn't even give it a shot. Like, you got to at least try. You guaranteed it, basically. Yeah. Yeah, so, all right, I think that the the doubts that come up should be based around, is this the right move? Is this going to work out? But the doubt should never be, am I capable of this, in right. my opinion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or am I being nuts or whatever? That's like, I, you shouldn't, I don't think you should question yourself in that way. At the same time, I don't think people should be delusional either. So there's like sure. a very, there's like yeah, a yeah. very fine line here. Like it's a balance beam walk almost between having, you know, staying tunnel visioned enough and focused enough and confident enough and like borderline narcissistic enough to feel like you've got something to give the world and you're going to do it no matter what anybody says. But at the same time, you got to be aware enough to know when something you're doing isn't working, why it's not working, or understand that maybe you're not great at something, but you are great at something else. Like yeah. it's good to know that kind of stuff. Cause I know several people who have careers now because they realized that this one thing that they were going for, they couldn't be the best in the world at, but there's something kind of like it that they could be the best in the world at. And by just altering course five degrees, now they've got success. Yeah. Um, yep. And you can't really figure that shit out without asking questions. So right. it's a real fine line uh, between doubt and uh, doubt and awareness, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But and I agree with you. Also, it's like, yeah, uh, speaking on the, like, the delusional side of things, like if, if you're a young kid, say you're like me when I was 13, I started playing guitar. I didn't have it in my, when I said like, I'm going to be a rock star one day, I didn't, it wasn't in my mind that like, okay, when I'm 14 next year, I'm going to be a rock star. It was, <laughs> it was always in my head like, someday I will, I will, you know, and, and I don't consider myself now like, like, you know, I, I'm more mature now. I, I'm not sitting here like, oh, I'm some egotistical asshole, rock star. I'm so cool. It's no, but you made it happen. I see myself lucky to have had a career in music for the last 10 years, and I hope it continues to be that way. Oh, but you know what it's like to be in a big band. Like, you made it happen. Yeah. You know, I've played Download Festival, main stage, like before Metallica, in front of 120,000 people. It's insane. It's such an insane thing to do. Yeah. And, like, if, if I were to go back and tell 13-year-old me that, hey, you know, fast forward, like, a lot of years and Decades. you'll do this. It would be like, what? No way. But I think a lot of people get discouraged from things because they want their people are impatient. I think there's a lot of distractions now with social media. It's so easy to just get on your phone and be distracted for an hour. Like, Oh, oh I got to focus again, you know? And I had nothing but time when I was younger and I didn't have a cell phone and I didn't have a lot of friends and I didn't have computers and video games and all this stuff. It was just, I had a guitar. And so, you know, in a, in a sense of like being fortunate to like, I had a guitar, that's what I would spend my time, you know, playing and learning songs and learning how to play. And there's, you know, if, if somebody nowadays, like somebody young listening to this and they're like, oh, I want to be in a band though. And I want to do that. I I'm driven you got to, you just have to apply yourself. You have to, you have to focus and, and like get, get good at it. And 
uh, like what we touched on earlier, it's like, you know, a lot of people want to, you know, learn guitar or learn how to sing. And then they want to learn how to record and learn how to mix and, and shoot videos and do all this stuff. And it's like, if you're doing all of that at once, it's just going to be like overload, brain overload. And it's going to be really hard to like really retain the information because a lot of it, it's, you know, for me, it's something that I've, and I'm, I'm not sitting here saying like, oh, I figured it all out. I'm the best. Like I'm constantly learning every single day still. And that's, that's what this industry is, is you're never going to learn it all. You're going to, things are constantly evolving and changing and uh, new techniques and gear and stuff are coming out. And there's always going to be something else and a new way to do something. And you just have to, it's like, you have to be consistent with, I mean, I think being successful with anything, you have to be consistent. Consistency is, is key, but you have to always be applying yourself. And there's never really like an end goal of like, okay, I reached my goal. Like, okay, I was on the guitar cover, uh, the guitar world in 2011. I was on the cover. That was one of my childhood goals and I did it. But I did that and then it wasn't like, well, cool, I'm done. I'm good. It's like, you're, you're, <laughs> you do that. You're, you've already set up five more goals that you're going after, you know? And it's, I think that's with any industry that you try to get in. And if you overload yourself with too many things at once, it's going to be difficult to to do it all. So, I'm not saying don't learn multiple things, but, you know, I think it's to streamline, like it, it's kind of a saying of if if you're trying to do, like you're going to be more successful picking one thing and focusing on that and getting that off the ground first. Like, mm -hmm. like say, let's, let's just take guitar, for example, like spend two years solid learning guitar. Like if you're a complete beginner, spend two years, but play every single day and really carve out the time where you're not just playing for five, 10 minutes. Like you're spending two hours a day playing every single day for two years. You will get good pretty quick. And then, okay, like like we talked about, you know, get proficient in one thing and then move on to the next thing. Because if you're applying yourself to like five different things all at once, you're probably not really gonna get anywhere too quick with any of them. And you're just gonna kind of find yourself in this battle of like not, not really getting anywhere. Where if you just take some time, focus on one thing, get good at that, and then start applying these next things, like, you know, like create a plan and and move forward with it. It reminds me of something that Blasco said, actually, when he spoke at the URM Summit. It's a variation of what we're talking about, but the same principle. We're talking about Zach Wild's uh, entrepreneurial ventures, basically the Zach Wild brand, all the products and stuff. And people were asking, like, about branding their own unsigned bands and having products and all that stuff. And he was like, look, consider Zach like an airplane that's going, that went down this runway, which is the guitar God runway. And he ran out of runway and then took off and had to do something else. Like he, he like completed that mission, basically the become a guitar God mission, which then allowed him to start doing all those other ventures. But if he had a, instead of becoming a guitar god and sustaining that long enough to become a legend, if he had, like, started a coffee company instead of practice guitar or, like, you know, split up his time, what he has now would not have been possible. So it's same kind of idea is, like, make something happen. I like to say you can do anything you want, but not all at the same time. Exactly, yeah. I mean, for me, it was... I became a guitar player and I got I got good at it before I even tried to be in a band and play with other people. 
I got to the point where I felt comfortable playing. I was like, I'm a solid player. And anytime I did like, oh, I'm going to go audition for this band or I'm going to go play with these guys and, and see how it goes. Every single time, it was without a question. It was like, you're hired. We want you in the band. Like, you're great. And it, there was no like, sorry, man, you didn't cut it. It was, it was never that situation. It was every single time I would yep. get the job. And, and I, th- I think that's important. You have to be, you have to be good before you try to go do those things. And, and, and then Blackville happened and I found, I found that like artist, artist success. I had already gone to recording school and whatnot and started dabbling with recording because I felt comfortable with my guitar playing. Like I'm not mm-hmm. going to say I'm the best guitar player in the world. There's people can shred circles around me. You're proficient enough for what you wanted to do. Yeah, exactly. And then I started developing like, well, I know it's important, like not only because I know it's important, but because I'm interested in it too. You've also got to be interested in what you're doing, obviously, or you're just not going to do it. But I wanted to learn how to record because I wanted to develop songwriting skills and I wanted to be able to take what I'm, these riffs that I'm playing and build them into something more. I want to be able to play it back and hear it with drums and stuff on it, you know? And so I got good guitar. I found success in a band as I started developing some recording skills. And for a long time, it was I, w- I wasn't really developing those skills. It was like I was picking up things here and there, and I was getting better at like recording. And it was more so I was learning how to record things. And I didn't even start messing with mixing yet. It was it was more so just learning how to record things and how to do how to record things the right way, and learning about the right gear and what's good. And you know, I mean, nowadays like you you can make almost if you know what you're doing, you can you can pretty much make anything sound good if you know what you're doing and you record it the right way. Key being knowing what you're doing. Knowing what you're doing, exactly. And so for me, up until five years ago, it was learning how to record things. And I still learn today. Like I said, you know, you never stop learning. And and in 2015 is when I really took the dive into, okay, I want to learn how to mix and make it sound crushing now. Uh, and again, here I am, in 2020, and I'm producing and mixing albums and putting things out, and you know I'm being hired to do it again because it sounds good enough, and I'm constantly learning and outdoing myself, and my mixes get better and better every time. Um, but again, it's like you know I I didn't do this all at once. It was like it's like stepping stones, you know. Like five years ago, I took the plunge into I'm really going to learn how to mix properly, and it you know you don't just learn it right. It's <laughs> not like you learn it and that's it. It's I'm still learning. Five years later, I'm still here learning. <laughs> Man, we got some URM students that like started mixing three months ago and then they'll join. Yeah. And within two weeks, they'll be like, my mixes don't sound like like I want them to. You got you guys are scamming me. It's oh like, man. Dude. <laughs> I mean, that's a very small number of people. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. it just it, it's just funny when it happens because it's like two so you've been doing this three and a half months and uh, and you're bummed that your mixes don't sound like Josh Wilbur? How about 15 more years? Yeah, exactly. And and that's the thing. It's like, that's what I'm talking about when people try to, uh, you want to do all these things at once. You've been playing guitar for two years, on and off. And it's like, hey, I'm in a band and and I'm we recorded the demo and like, check out my demo. And it's like, I'll hear it. And I was like, some 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 stuff's great that people send. Some stuff I'm just like, what in the world? Like, well, there's talent out there, keep, of course. There there is yeah. for sure. But a lot of people, it's just like you, you need to like focus. Like, just 
keep going. Like I'm not not to be discouraging. Like keep going. Like that's awesome. You're doing it, but you gotta you gotta keep going and you gotta keep working at it because there's a lot of work to be done. Obviously, and I mean, especially with mixing, it's like man, that it took me five years just to. Like before I even took the plunge into mixing, like, you know, I started dabbling here and there and like learning plugins. And I mean, I think one of the the hardest things to learn, and I think probably anybody that's like a mix engineer can say is like just understanding and being able to hear compression and like oh, yeah. when you're it's supposed to use one. it, how much, it's a tough one. It's it's difficult. And then like, I'm still learning with it. You know, it's like, it, it's it's just, it's a, it's a thing that when you first start out, it's like, I, I can't imagine only mixing for three months. And <laughs> I could say right there, your mixes don't sound like that because you don't understand compression. <laughs> you don't understand anything. Anything, at, at yeah. At that point? But so when you were young and you were thinking, when you, you were talking about how you didn't say, I want to be a rock star by 14. However, did you realize like, could you imagine that it was really actually going to take decades to like get to a, I mean, it, it took a long time and decades for a kid is like centuries to an adult, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Did you think it would take that long? I honestly never even thought about it. You just were going to do it. I was just going to do it. I didn't have a plan B. I didn't have Good. any other, it was. Nobody who makes it work has a plan B. That's what I've, yeah. what I've decided yeah, I don't know a single person who's made it, it happen that has a plan B. Yeah, it was it was all or nothing. So that was my path that I took and that what I was going to go down. And I I didn't have any other other option but to stick it out. Glad you made it work. But I, uh, you know, but again, it's like I I have to say it's like I I applied myself very heavily into you know I I, I can't tell you how much time even to this day just watching tutorials and it's not even like that I'm trying to learn something new, I go watch things just to keep things refreshed in my mind. Like, I already know how to get great guitar tones, but I'll go look up like, oh, I just got this plugin. I wanna see how somebody else got a crushing tone with it. And I'll learn how someone else did it, what they use. You know, it's just constantly learning new techniques, how somebody else does it. And just even like refreshing my memory or, or finding just an, a slightly alternate way that somebody else might do something. And I go, huh, I never thought of it like that. And that's what will grow, make you grow and become better and better and better. And it, yeah, anybody listening, like you can't expect to achieve greatness overnight. It just doesn't happen. It takes a lifetime. It, you know, I, I can't sit here to this day and say, oh, I've achieved greatness. Like I'm good. I'm, I'm happy with where I'm at. Like I, I'm stoked to have had a career for the last 10 years. And I'm going to keep working hard to make sure that I can stay in the game and keep doing this, whether it's, you know, songwriting, producing music, or being the artist, touring, you know, putting out albums. For me, it's just what I like to do. My spare time, it was always like when I had to work a day job, I would go to work. And the second I got home, I would open up Pro Tools and grab my guitar and I'd start making music. And I'd record till two, three in the morning and like, oh, I got to go to sleep for like three hours and then get up and go back to work. Yep. And that was, I would just repeat that process because for me, making music and recording in my free time, that's what I did. It wasn't, I didn't find it like, oh, I have to go do this. It was just, I, I was eager to like, I can't wait to get home and I can just like work on on some new music idea I have in my head or something. And that if if you don't have that, 
and you don't find yourself like thinking every moment like you can't wait to work like work on your idea or do or get it done or, or whatever it is and you, you're not doing what you actually love you gotta I agree the most important thing is to to find what it is that you absolutely love and pursue that well there's a big difference between actually loving it and loving the idea of it sure it's two totally different things I think a lot more people are in love with the idea of it than the actual thing yeah but yeah that's I agree. true I agree with you completely. Anyways, I think this is a good place to stop the episode. I want to thank you for coming on, dude. It's been awesome talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at URM Audio, And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.